The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff. I'm the host of the podcast and director of advancement admissions here at the seminary, as well as a student in the Masters of Divinity program. I have with me in the studio today our president, Dr. Piper. Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Zach. It's always good to be with you. Today we will be dealing with a number of questions that specifically address issues going on in the Presbyterian Church in America. But what we want to make sure all of our listeners are aware of is that these questions and the answers to them contain principles that are relevant, useful, important for anyone in any Reformed and confessional denomination, Presbyterian or otherwise. So please don't check out when we're addressing those issues. Don't think that we're only concerned with the PCA, but glean what you can from Dr. Piper's answers to the questions that are posed in order to pursue Reformation in your context as well. That being said, I want to give a couple of updates about the seminary before we dive into the program. Next month, in March, we have our 2019 Greenville Seminary Spring Theology Conference. It's called Amazing Grace, 400 Years After the Synod of Dort. What is the Synod of Dort, you may be asking, though I suppose many of you already know what that is. It was an international body of Reformed churchmen in the 17th century who gathered together to answer a collection of objections to the Reformed faith called the Remonstrances, and what they produced was a document, the Canons of Dort, that encapsulate or contain or summarize what we call the Doctrines of Grace, or TULIP. So this year, we're going to have a a collection of sermons preached before us, as well as two lectures delivered about the history behind Dort. It's going to be a great time. And we're going to have food trucks. Lots? Well, three food trucks. I guess that's not lots of food trucks. Did you want to add anything, Dr. P? Y'all come. (laughs) Y'all come. That's right. I think without further ado, I'll ask Dr. Pipa to open us in prayer, and then we will jump into our questions. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit, We bless and adore you, for you alone are God. There's none like you in heaven, earth, the sea. You made all these things and governed them, Lord, by the word of your power. We thank you that you have come to us uh, by your spirit through your word. And the spirit who gave us the word is the spirit who illumines our understanding. And we seek now as help, Lord, that your spirit would uh, give me insight in answering the questions and to answer them correctly. And later, as our listeners will uh, follow through uh, in the podcast and listen to the questions and answers, that your Spirit will continue to bless this ministry. Forgive us of our sins. Grant that we would do nothing to hinder or quench the Spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Our first question comes from Nathan Melker of Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, and he asks, to what extent is there truth in the Thomistic understanding of faith and reason? What about Aquinas on this point can we as Reformed believers affirm, and what should we reject as part of an erroneous Roman Catholic understanding? We've chosen to answer this question first because it lays the foundation Uh, for the next two uh, anonymous questions that are very important today in the life of biblical and Reformed um, Christians. And I want to answer it a bit more narrowly, is that uh, uh, 
Aquinas made it a dichotomy between nature and grace, and that is a Roman Catholic distinction, whereas we would see grace trumping everything, grace uh, redeeming and transforming nature until the end when Christ returns and makes all things perfect. So his methodology then, because he was Aristotelian, was to apply Aristotelian principles in doing his theological work. Now, there's a, a degree that one can do that in terms of principles of logic and, and reasoning and things like that. But he would take other Aristotelian findings and he would he sought to apply those to doing his uh, theology. Now, it's very interesting. When Aquinas worked as an exegete, uh, his uh, sermons, for example, his commentaries are quite good, I understand. Um, he was Augustinian in his view of uh, election and grace. Uh, but as he interwove these other aspects, then is when he became syncretistic, where he tried to blend the two things. And in doing so, uh, I don't want to follow Aquinas there. But as much as we can learn from Aquinas, uh, both with respect to uh, the general methodology of a rigorous approach to thinking. And so when you hear about the... Um, um, reform scholastics. Uh, they were taking the, uh, the method that Aquinas and the schoolmen developed, making sure it was always in subservience to Scripture, but seeking to deal with the Scripture in a very logical fashion. So that's a very useful place for us. Now I start here because as I've analyzed the next two sets of questions, particularly the, uh, the first one we're going to deal with, some overtures dealing with gender and sexuality, um, as I've thought through these things, Zach, I've come to the conclusion that uh, the big problem uh, that we're facing in our denomination is, in fact, uh, hermeneutics, the philosophy of interpretation. And that we are doing today, uh, not with Aristotle, but with the thinking patterns of science, what Aquinas did with Aristotle. So what we've seen happen in the PCA, in the OPC in particular, the Presbyterian Church in America, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, is the application of the, quote, findings of modern science to how one does exegesis. And so uh, we have uh, compromised uh, on the traditional understanding and I think the confessional understanding of uh, Genesis 1 uh, and two, by uh, trying to harmonize them with claims of a very old earth and the geological, geological record and things like that. So the methodology is that we're using a world system of science that <laughs> is uh, every bit as uh, speculative as some of Aristotle's theories as well to drive us. Now what's happened, and I think it's exactly the same Hermeneutic. We get into this issue of uh, gender and sexuality. Uh, what's happening is the, the scientific system is declaring certain things today, all unproven, by the way. We'll get back to that, I think, Lord willing. Uh, uh, scientific, sociological findings about um, what they want to define is, is homosexuality and transgender. And what the church, it's the same hermeneutic now. Well, the world is saying this, and so we must interpret the Bible in terms of 
the findings of modern science. And we, what we're doing in this is bringing uh, a world system and philosophy into the church. And so uh, negatively, we can learn a lot from Aquinas and the schoolmen as well, because I think particularly in our two large reform denominations, we are following the same path. And if that's the case, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is not that far behind us uh, in terms of tra trajectory. Dr. Piper referenced a couple of questions that are germane to the PCA. We're going to dive into those right now, and, and these were submitted anonymously for our consideration and for us to address, or really for Dr. Piper to address. I'm just here along for the ride. But uh, Dr. Piper is going to, uh, to answer these questions, and, um, and hopefully these will be helpful not just to men in the PCA, but men and women in every uh, Reformed and Confessional denomination, as I said earlier. Dr. Piper, recently two PCA presbyteries in South Carolina, Calvary and Fellowship, have sent up complimentary overtures. If you look at PCANet.org, it's number four and number 11, respectively, to the 47th General Assembly of the denomination, which is meeting this June. And these overtures are for the General Assembly to make public statements in support of biblical sexual ethics. Why are these overtures significant, and should they be adopted by the General Assembly? Why or why not? Let me just give a little background for uh, readers who might not hear, might not be familiar. Um, in our, our General Assembly every year, uh, normally uh, through presbyteries, churches or individuals may bring um, issues for debate, uh, particularly issues either for the church to uh, make a stand on something, to correct something, or to do something with respect to our uh, book of church order, which is our uh, governmental uh, a constitution. Now, these two particular overtures, then, as Zach mentions, have to do with sexual ethics. I want to start with number 11. Uh, they address two different uh, documents. Uh, number four addresses uh, the Nashville Statement, and many of you have heard about the Nashville Statement, and you can go online and read the Nashville Statement, or you can also now go to pca.net and uh, uh, look at it. It's listed here in the Overture 4. Overture 11 deals with an older statement that was passed by the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. That's a sister denomination uh, with whom we have very close relations. Uh, and I think it was in, it was earlier than I realized, it was 2011, I think, they adopted uh, this uh, statement. And they adopted it as a member uh, of NAPARC, Oh, this is why the Overtures asked us to consider it. They are a sister denomination. We're all part of the National Association of Presbyterian Reformed Churches. And I start with theirs because it really addresses this issue that I just brought up. So, for example, uh, the very subtle change in vocabulary, and we can go right back and, and understand from um, the novel 1912, whoever controls language controls culture. Um, what we call homosexuality was universally called sodomy from the Bible. And actually it was in Germany, their overture points out, or their statement, that because of the social sciences, to get rid of pejorative um, reactions as well as to put this on a scientific level that this is not an aberration, uh, the language was moved to homosexuality and then kinder and gentler terms, lesbianism, uh, 
gay, and queer. All of those terms gloss over the awful reality of the Bible's term sodomy. takes us back to Sodom and Gomorrah, one of the sins for which they uh, were destroyed, and a sin which the Bible condemns in both Testaments. Now, I didn't realize that. And in reading over the overture, that was very enlightening to me because right there we see the shift. And this is where the culture begins to be pressed now by the scientific community. And you can look at the research. There was obviously a lot of prejudice pushing to change the whole uh, mentality toward sodomy. Then the report looks at the various uh, historical um, Attempts in science, uh, is this uh, DNA, is there a queer gene? Uh, that's the word that scientists use. I'm not being pejorative with that kind of uh, language. Uh, Nature-nurture business, um, is there something within a person that would incline them uh, toward uh, sodomy? Uh, and the report's so wise because it simply says, you know, the scientific Evidence at this point is absolutely inconclusive, but let's just assume there is. And then they address the issue from Romans 1 and other places that because of the awful destruction of the fall, we all have sinful proclivities. And so they move on to point out then that sinful proclivities uh, towards sexual perversion are sin in themselves. Now, in uh, some evangelical and reformed circles today and in our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, we have those that are saying that same-sex attraction is not sinful as long as one stays chaste. Well, our Savior says that any lust is uh, adultery. Uh, but beyond that, same-sex attraction is clearly a perversion. The, the report gets into uh, genders the issue, uh, not sex or sexuality. There's only two genders that God has created. It also addresses the, the, the people might have brain things that think of themselves partly as the other sex, the other gender, than what they are. Uh, and so it's a very balanced uh, report. And so I would hope that our denomination will adopt this overture. Um, in, in one sense, it'll be probably more difficult because it really does address without coming out and saying so, perhaps, the hermeneutical issues. We have a lot of people today, and, and this helped me understand why uh, men who believe the Bible could be taking the kind of stands they take, as we've seen in the Revoice Conference, as we've seen um, uh, people connected with the PCA um, uh, having a known lesbian uh, lead singing in their services. They were going to sponsor a... a uh, uh, conference that had her speaking and the response was so vociferous that they uh, canceled that claiming they were ignorant of her of her beliefs um, so because this report addresses the mindset uh, it wisely does so by saying even if there are even if science is proving correctly uh, completely correct in the future that this there's some uh, genetic or mental predisposition, it's because of the perversion of the fall, and it's not natural. It's sin, and the grace will relieve the great majority from this. But they put, even if grace doesn't, 
it still must be put to death and mortified. So it's well worthy of study. It's a, it's a very useful report. I, I've only skimmed it uh, last night when I realized the overture is actually dealing with different issues. So those of you who are going to the assembly, I encourage you to read it, uh, not just for the voting on it, but recognize that this is a very good tool to be used um, in our various um, reactions to things like Revoice and, and other different kinds of conferences like that. Now, the overture passed by uh, my presbytery, Calvary, that was my fellowship, which is uh, basically due east of us and um, came out of Calvary Presbytery uh, 20-something years ago. Uh, this one by Calvary Presbytery, which is here in the uh, top half of the upstate, except for that eastern section, um, uh, is urging General Assembly to adopt what's been called the Nashville Statement. And we had good debate in our Presbytery over this. Now, there'll be those, and I, I probably am inclined to agree with them, that would say the Nashville Statement does not go far enough, perhaps on same-sex attraction. But there's nothing that I see in the Nashville Statement that would not be biblical. And so I th think that it, too... Uh, it was put together by basically the same group of people that put together the earlier statement on inerrancy. Uh, and uh, it is a statement that can unite a broad range of evangelical and Reformed Christians on this issue. There have been a number of people uh, in the PCA, OPC, the Re Reformed Christian Church in North America that have uh, signed uh, onto this uh, some of our hearers will know about Rosaria Butterfield, who is a converted um, lesbian and um, has had a very, she's wife now of a, of a RPCNA minister and had a very effective witness bearing in this area. She signed it. So I'm hoping as well that our assembly will uh, sign this and then the overture asked for it to be sent to the uh, education committee to be made part of its training materials. So these are both worthy. Uh, pray about it. Study them. Uh, if you're involved in a PCA presbytery, talk to the ruling elder and teaching elder from your presbytery that will be on this committee, the Bills and Overtures Committee at the PCA that will deal with this. And um, encourage them to study it. If you can get on that committee yourself, uh, do so. But I, I want to wrap up the package now because... I am convinced the same hermeneutic that gives us um, analogical theory and framework theory of uh, Genesis 1 on creation is what's going on here. So you have people that say, well, yes, uh, but when they wrote this in the Bible, they didn't understand that this was actually uh, a genetic makeup that a person cannot escape, and thus we should not be labeling it uh, sin. And I think that what we're seeing because of this is not simply will tolerate same-sex attraction. I believe that it's a movement that will tolerate um, sodomites uh, in our congregations uh, because... And then it's the same hermeneutics that put women in office. Uh, in fact, you can circle back, and I often tell people this at the, in public places, the gym and stuff we're talking about, well, they left the church because of the stand on homosexuality. I said, you recognize that uh, it was the approach to women in office that said Paul was simply outdated there, didn't understand, that now has 
Every denomination, that, as far as I can tell, that first started ordaining women, uh, particularly to the uh, leadership office of elder and minister, has moved now to accepting sodomy as something that is acceptable. So there's a principle there, and I know that some of our hearers will get upset, so good, let's hear from you. But uh, show me the difference, then, between how people are approaching Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, how they approach women's ordination, and how they approach this issue. Um, I would be willing to wager at least a month's salary, with Zach anyway, that uh, you'll not find a person who's a six-day creationist that has taken a, a position now on homosexuality, such as same And if you are such a person, as I say on talk radio, I want to hear from you. Uh, prove me wrong on this, okay? Thank you, Dr. Piper. The follow-up is a bit more pointed about re responses, appropriate responses to these issues in our church courts. It's no secret, at least to our audience, that the PCA is confronting some serious issues today now regarding sexual ethics, theological anthropology, and identity politics within church life. So this is including everything about which you were just speaking and then going beyond that. There are two responses from men who are opposed to progressive agendas, social and theological, at work in the PCA. Fight or flight. What do you think is the appropriate response? Is now the time to stay, stand, and fight, or is it time to make serious plans for exit? I think the question summarizes the issue quite well. And unfortunately, uh, it also gets to uh, part of the problem, that is, we're, what we're having today uh, on the conservative side in the PCA uh, is a fragmentation. So uh, it's just almost a steady stream of a congregation here. Two congregations there are leaving and going into other uh, denominations they consider to be uh, more faithful to the Reformed faith. I've wrestled with this issue ever since I was ordained. I was ordained in the Southern Presbyterian Church in 1971. And so I lived through the struggles of uh, forming the PCA. I am one of the charter members of the PCA. I had a personal struggle, though, that I had to work through. Uh, was it schismatic at that point to leave uh, the, uh, the PCUS, the nickname the Southern Presbyterian Church? Now, that's going to sound really strange uh, to today's hearers who are already jumping ship. Well... When I was ordained, uh, we had women elders and ministers. Uh, we had uh, campus ministers pushing abortion. And we had a lady named Angela Davis, who was an outright communist, pushing an, a horrendous social agenda. Not just that she was doing it, but she was being approved and doing it by the church. Now, um, the church still had its constitution. And... Um, so it was a difficult issue for me. And it was actually Dr. Smith's book, How the Goals Become Dumb. I know some of our hearers might not like a few things in that book. Just remember at what time of, of the century it was written. is what anybody, black or white, would have written probably uh, in, in those days. Uh, but that book helped me deal with the issues. And although I did not think that the PCUS was apostate, I did think it was, uh, there were sound biblical principles for leaving. Now believe me, particularly you younger hearers, uh, there is no comparison 
to where the PCA is today and where the PCUS was then. And I think we've grown very impatient um, with idealism. We need to understand, for example, I tell my students this because they just haven't lived through it. When I got out of seminary, they were maybe in the entire region of the southern states, um, not counting a few OPC churches down in southern Florida, which I don't consider southern states, uh, there may be only two or three self-conscious Reformed churches. And that's not an exaggeration. Uh, you had re some Reformed people. You had the Pensacola Institute that was pushing books and speakers. You had Reformed Seminary, though, that began to put out men. And God blessed that so well, so that now um, the PCA, which formed out of the southern tier of, of churches in America, is full of Reformed churches and moderately Reformed churches. Uh, churches that maybe aren't as zealous about the Reformed faith but have good worship. Others that be more zealous about the Reformed faith and have bad worship. But it's, uh, it's so different. So my first call is patience, men. Uh, you know, we're just not there. And but let me give you four principles. I've got an article. I'm hoping to be able to get it onto my uh, website uh, in the next couple of weeks. Um, so I worked through Owen and Calvin in particular on the grounds of leaving a church. And there's four principles that I get from those two men, and they're in the article. But the first one is, with respect, the, the chief thing will be the marks of the church. Now, the marks of the church in our confession of faith are right uh, preaching gospel and sacraments and worship. Discipline is not stated uh, specifically, nor is it stated specifically in Calvin. It is stated specifically in the Dutch standards. Uh, I think it's implied. You can't have the right sacraments without right discipline. So I think it's there. But I, I think that the framers did understand as Owen points out in their context, that uh, failures of church discipline did not rise to the level of failures with respect to the gospel and the sacraments. So each denomination has to be evaluated in terms of the marks of the church. Uh, is the gospel being preached is the gospel being held to confessionally and being preached? Uh, is it being preached in our foreign missions program? I think we have to answer all those questions if you say yes. At this point, the gospel is being preached. At this point, uh, we don't have universalists uh, going to the mission field. When the OPC came out in the 30s, they did. The, the, the Northern Presbyterian Church had... Uh, 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 Mrs. Buck out there in China, who was a universalist, and our Miss Buck, uh, other types of missionaries that were denying the gospel. The gospel was being denied. It was being denied in the pulpits as well. It was being denied in the presbyteries. Uh, and so clearly they'd lost the, that mark of the church. The Roman Catholic Church, Calvin and Luther were both very uh, hesitant about leaving the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, but uh, eventually became an issue of the gospel and then of the sacraments. So, although it amazes me then, we say that they 
have a corrupt view of the sacraments, so they're they don't have the mark of the church, and yet we have people that won't accept Roman Catholic baptism. That doesn't equate for me. But anyway, that's another issue. I think we've addressed it in the past podcast. So discipline. Uh, and then I think it's Owen that points out, look at Corinth and how Paul addresses them to the saints of the church in Corinth, and they were not exercising church discipline. He had to call them on the carpet of that. They had heretics that were... Um, teaching against the resurrection, and needed to be disciplined. Then you go to the letters in uh, Revelation 2 and 3. These were churches that had in within them bad doctrine and bad discipline. And the angel didn't tell John, leave the churches. Now he said, I will remove their lampstand. There will come a day when there will be no church. But uh, at this point, he wrote for reformation and correction not for exit. So that's, that's the first issue. Second issue, try to keep them uh, in order. Uh, does the church you're in persecute you for holding to the truth? And uh, they both work that out. And, uh, of course, the answer uh, in the OPC's day, yes. Machen was put on trial and excommunicated. Um, so people were being disciplined, put out of the church for holding to orthodox beliefs about the gospel. Now, even in Owen's day, they wrestled with this, and there were those that were put out of the church, but most of the, the authorities backed off of that when 400 were suspended and did not make them take a vow that there was nothing in the uh, book of prayer that was contrary to Scripture. Uh, and so they were able to stay. And Owen Perkins, I just read this, and Perkins was just uh, abominated the idea of separating at that point from the Church of England, which was probably in the days of the Puritan, maybe about as strong as the PCA. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but we're not being persecuted for holding our beliefs. People, some people might laugh at us or whatever. But uh, there's been nobody tried to put us out of the church yet. Nobody's tried to keep us out of a presbytery yet. Uh, and if that happened, if a man was kept out of the presbytery for holding to the confession and that went to the General Assembly and they didn't reverse that, then we've got an objective standard. The third um, ground that the two men give is, uh, is does the church require you to sin? Let's make the analogy with the abortion laws in America. They're wretched, but they don't require us. The Chinese laws require abortion. Uh, our laws allow abortion. So again, uh, and we've, we've passed some, I think, some pretty foolish things uh, at our General Assembly with respect to uh, women and uh, other social identity issues. Uh, but... Uh, those are basically statements of one journal assembly. They have no binding authority. And there's nothing that's come out of a Presbyterian journal assembly that compels me to send. Uh, now, it doesn't have to have happened to me uh, because, again, of the corporate nature of the church. Uh, I, have, uh, I have a friend um, who now is in the PC, OPC. Um, his Presbyterian would not ordain him because... He said, I would not ordain a woman. So there they're causing him to sin. 
And so he left. Now, I think at that point, every other conservative in that denomination should have left, uh, left with him. Um, and that's what Owen and Calvin... And that was Gerstner's ground as well. Gerstner was a bit slow to leave, but there's a book, uh, I have an article in it on confessionalism, Soledad Gloria published it on the church, Almond Christian Soldiers, and I think Gerstner has the last chapter, which was the paper he wrote on why he did leave. Also, in God's Providence was at 10th Pres on the night that James Boyce announced that his presbytery had just received a man who denied the deity of Christ, and Boyce went on record at his congregation that night if the General Assembly has not over, overturned that, I'm out of here. And they didn't overturn it. Then you've lost the gospel, you see. He had clear objective grounds at that point for leaving. Now, the fourth principle applies more to those, our hearers who are not. And we've got a question like this today. I don't, we'll get to it. But who are not uh, at officeship level in a denomination, but in a local congregation. And the fourth one is, uh, am I being edified? Or is this church, there's no edification for me in this church. And I think this is what a person has to work through when they've come to, to a deeper grasp of the Reformed faith or covenant theology. It comes a point they need to do it respectfully. But if the church is teaching false doctrine uh, by what they've come to understand, they leave. And particularly if they have children. I might tolerate more as an adult who don't have little children at home, but... Uh, if I, if I have little children, I don't want to leave them under that kind of preaching. So for those four reasons, I'm of the very strong opinion uh, that it is not time uh, to leave the uh, Presbyterian Church in America. And I plead uh, for patience with those who have given up and are jumping ship. You know, God... We tell our students, God didn't promise you a rose garden. We took this from the Marines. God didn't promise a rose garden. He wants a few good men. So what if you lose some votes at Presbyterian General Assembly? Look at Calvin. To the end of his days in Geneva, he never got everything he wanted, particularly in the area of church discipline, of weekly communion, a number of things like that. Look at the Puritans. Um, they just uh, didn't uh, often get what they wanted from the church at large. Um, the few that did bail out, others like Perkins and later than Owen, would have been very um, disappointed that these things happened. When the 2000 left in 1669, uh, it's because they were going to be forced to sin. They had to sign a document that there was nothing in the prayer book contrary to Scripture. And they... They couldn't do that. They would have had sin to have done that. Uh, if they had not been ordained with, with uh, Episcopal ordination, their ordination would not be valid. They'd have to deny their own ordination. Thus, they've been illegitimately preaching and ministering the sacraments. So 2,000 were forced out at that point because they would have had to sin to stay in. Now, there, even then, we understand people's consciences. There were a couple of very fine men, Leighton and Downham, who, who stayed in uh, even at that point. Uh, but then you have objective grounds to leave. Now, the last part of the question, if I remember it correctly, is um, what do you think is the appropriate response? Well, I've told you that I think we should stay. If we stay, we must be engaged in reforming the church. This means that uh, we'll have many hearers on this podcast to quit going to Journal Assembly. I appreciate that. 
it's not a very good use of time or money. But uh, don't refrain from going to General Assembly and, and take your congregation out of the denomination, okay? Because you didn't pull your own weight. And don't stay in and not go to uh, General Assembly because you haven't fought the good fight. We need to uh, be there. I know it's a sacrifice. I know it's expensive. There are things underway uh, to um, help churches at least get one ruling elder and one teaching elder to the assembly. You know, I recommend uh, no taxation without representation. I recommend if your church can't afford the $400, you show your elder, your elder shows up at General Assembly and demands the right to vote because there's nothing in our Constitution that says I've got to pay $400 or 450 now to vote. We just need to have a mass um, entrance. I don't say it's going to add to the expense of the assembly if all the ruling elders come. Uh, everything's been paid for. They're going to pay for their own meals and their own rooms. So ruling elders show up and demand the right to vote. Uh, but we, we can't abdicate at that level. Those of you who are in presbyteries where error is being uh, taught by a church in that presbytery or a minister, the discipline must begin with you, not with those of us that are 500 miles away. Uh, I get very frustrated. People give me reports with this presbytery, that presbytery, somebody was doing this or that. Well, you guys are going to do with it there. And so we need to be, yeah. Um, it's time. We, we must stay humble and winsome. But it's time to quit being a Mr. Nice Guy. It's time to demand uh, that our church adhere to her standards and to Scripture and that uh, you're going to bring charges against people uh, if, they, if they don't do that. Now, we do have yet the provision uh, for other presbyteries to get involved if a presbytery doesn't rightly uh, discipline. Dr. Smith you, and I used that provision years ago, and because of that we became very disliked by another portion of the church, and that's part of what gave rise to what we call good faith subscription. Uh, but we've got to do that. So we can't just stay in. Uh, my good friend Ian Hamilton will say that the people that stayed in the Church of Scotland were pietist. They simply said, we'll do our thing and stay. He said that was wrong. Uh, no, if you stay, you've got to fight. Now, what should happen? Please stop the fragmentation. A good friend of mine, Andy Webb, a year and a half ago, I think it was now, offered for his session to call a convocation of sessions. Not, we recently had a meeting of individuals. That is not useful. Uh, convocation of sessions, uh, called by a session or a number of sessions, at which we could have a, a discussion of these things. I would like to present a paper on why we shouldn't leave. Somebody else could present a paper on why we should leave. And then we should hear from uh, the other Reformed denominations, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the Bible Presbyterian Church, the Social Reformed Presbyterian Church in particular, um, uh, of, of why we should go in their direction, and a paper on why we should start a new denomination. Uh, and, but we need to act as churchmen. Our brothers are acting like independents. And it grieves me to no end. We, we, uh, as of a month from now, we'll have had two churches in our presbytery, which is one of the most conservative in the PCA, leave the denomination. One for a uh, new denomination that's being formed, which I think is very unfortunate, and one for the Bible Presbyterian Church. 
Uh, let's act in concert and quit acting individualistically. Let's act covenantally. So I'll be glad if some of you people listening, if your elders want to have a convocation of sessions, I'll be glad to participate. Um, and uh, I think that Greenville Center would be glad to uh, help sponsor the thing as long as no stands are being taken um, about where to go or we have to leave now or something like that. So it is very important. Um, and I do want to hear back from our listeners on this. Dr. Piper, a follow-up question. For those who are committed to staying at this point, is there any reason to therefore map out contingency plans for an exit strategy? Well, that's what I just dealt with. Or would that be counterproductive? No, the contingency plans are have a convocation of sessions. Let's talk about where we are, uh, and if it, it, when it's time to go, where are we going to go? What that does, was my contingency plan. What does doing that communicate to those in the PCA who are taking a more progressive agenda and advancing that? Wouldn't that give them hope that, that we're seriously considering leaving and, and we're on our way out and they're just going to wait us out? Well, I wouldn't organize it that way. I mean, I would organize, no, this is... This is not, this is sending a signal, though, that we're not going to sit back. If we're going to stay in, what do we need to do? You know, we have an overture, uh, and, and I speak now as a private. I've been in the PCA from its beginning, so I have some right to speak as a private churchman, not because of my connection uh, here. There are overtures that we uh, let Covenant Seminary go independent. There's a lot of sound reasons for that. They want women on their board. Uh, they can have that. They already have on their board um, uh, people from other denominations. That's good. Um, they are not being supported by the majority of Presbyterian churches in America. Uh, they are having women with MDivs or getting ordained in other, other churches. Let them go. Uh, let's cut off the pipeline of progressivism uh, in, in the PCA. So, no. Um, and I'm not saying we have to have the convocation of sessions, but you, the question er, as asked, what is the game plan? And I think that somewhere along the way, even if we could stop the bleeding right now, that would be worthwhile. Let's get together and say we must work for reform. Let's quit leaving prematurely. Yes, and I wholeheartedly endorse, endorse that for sure. Well, thank you for tackling that. I hope that was helpful to our listeners. I'm sure it was. It was helpful to me in terms of reorienting me on, on what exactly ought to be pursued, even as a man who's preparing for ordained ministry and not, not in ordained service to the church at this point. This next question from Chad Warner of Simpsonville actually might have some tie into what we were just discussing. How should we understand Jesus's statements that sufficient faith can move mountains and trees? And he cites Matthew 17, 20, Mark 11, 23 to 24, and Luke 17, 6. We'll just read one of the passages. Thank you, Chad. It's always good to hear from you. And if you people like our new website, well, Chad's the guy that's been doing the hard work on it. He said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, they will say, why could we not drive it out? This is when the, uh, Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and the man brings a very sorely oppressed son, uh, demon-possessed, and the disciples couldn't drive it out. So they say, why could we not drive it out? Jesus said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible to you. First thing to keep in mind is that Jesus used hyperbole to make important points. Um, 
A friend of mine, Jim Wright, that works with us, he's uh, over in South Africa. He's doing his doctoral studies on the parables, and one of his theses is every parable is hyperbolic. And since he said that, and I'm going back and reading them, it's really true. You know, a mustard plant might be the biggest garden plant, but for it to be a tree in which the birds of heaven nest. Um, uh, so uh, now hyperbole works when it's not all the time. <laughs> My wife asked me, I was telling her this in the Lord's Day. He says, well, doesn't our president use hyperbole? I said, hyperbole works when it's not used all the time. <laughs> and she said, well, he doesn't do it all the time. Uh, but Jesus did it rarely. But when he did it then, he made his point. That's the whole purpose of, by the way, for here is, is hyperbole means uh, to overstate something for the point of emphasis. It's not that you want to be taken literally at that point. So Jesus does not intend to be taken literally at this point, uh, but spiritually to show the great power of faith. So that any obstacle that was uh, in the way of the advance of the gospel can be overturned by the believing prayers of the people of God. And it might not even be in our lifetime, but God is going to use those prayers to accomplish his purpose. And our faith then is not to waver. So when I pray for the church in Chengdu, where I have friends, um, I, uh, I believe that at some point God's going to remove that mountain of persecution and so i pray believing that but what we don't do in our prayers is put god on a timetable that is dangerous because he's all wise and we are very short-sighted so chad i think that's what that means uh take it to heart though whatever obstacle is there spiritually whether it's a sin in your life a sin in the church or whatever get back to talking about a denomination you know are we pleading with god to Bring us revival and reformation. Are we having days of prayer and fasting? We have uh, uh, every semester at the seminary day of prayer and fasting, and faculty just adopted going uh, in the fall to a whole half day of uh, praying uh, together. Uh, so uh, we want our churches to be doing this as well. Consider this. In 1965, 1970, 1975, as the PCA was just getting started, or if we're going back to the... 73. Well, I know 1973 is when it got started, but I mean in those times. Or if you want to go back OPC context, back to the 1920s and the modernism, fundamentalism controversies, there were men striving and laboring. We read about that in the history books. But what else were they doing? They were men of prayer and men of faith. Mm -hmm. And they're gone now, most of them. I mean, we have a, a group of men left from the beginning of the PCA. I think the last man who was around when the OPC was founded, uh, John Galbraith, passed away a number of years ago to go home to glory. Those men were praying, and their prayers were answered. And now we, those who are inheriting the blessings that they, stro that they prayed for and worked for, right. we're showing an, an immense amount of ingratitude by being so impatient ourselves, at least in the PCA. Um, and I say that boldly because I mean it sincerely. We should be thanking God daily for the fact that we have a number of faithful seminaries. We have um, scores of faithful churches that hold to Reformed distinctives, and we're still planting churches. 
I'll be going in April. Dr. Pipe and I were discussing this a moment ago to Twin Lakes Fellowship uh, Fraternal down in Jackson. <laughs> and that whole, that whole group is committed to ensuring that happy confessional churches with ordinary means of grace worship and ministry are being planted here in America and around the world. Uh, consider the fruit that has come from the labors and prayers of these faithful men of the past. And, and let's continue therefore, to pray that God would move mountains and uproot trees. Yes, and Chad, I know you're at prayer meeting, but again, our churches have very poorly attended prayer meetings, and then our prayer meetings so often focus on tertiary issues when every prayer meeting should be focusing primarily on the exercise ministry in that congregation and then revival and reformation in the church. Hey, this is something you could do in your presbytery. Most presbyteries open with a season of prayer, when everybody else is bringing um, good requests for people who are ailing and infirm in their congregations, requests that should be prayed for, why don't you bring up a prayer request for the advancement of the of the kingdom of grace against the I kingdom of I think the moderator darkness? of Calvary Presbytery did that at the last Presbytery meeting, didn't he? Yeah, I think the moderator of Calvary Presbytery just tooted his own horn. <laughs> no. <laughs> this podcast. <laughs> no, you did, and, and, I, and, I, and I, remar- I made note of that. That's a good practice that we should follow. We have time for a couple more questions uh, to flesh out our time here on the podcast. From Lucas Salgado of Recife, Brazil, he asks, should the church discipline a young man or young woman who dates an unbeliever? Normally, pastors don't agree to conduct a wedding ceremony between a believer and non-believer. However, we frequently see that the session doesn't take disciplinary action of any kind during dating and engagement phases. What should pastors and elders do in the situation of a church member dating an unbeliever? Well, Lucas, I guess you just threw a grenade in the middle of the room, so... The room's already blown up. (laughs) I'll throw my body over it. (laughs) Um, To cut to the chase, I do think we should be disciplining church members uh, who are uh, deliberately uh, dating uh, unconverted people. But just go back one step. It's first off a family uh, issue. And uh, fathers who are listening to me today, I, I periodically I'll be in the home of somebody and I'll ask them about their, uh, who their daughter, where their daughter is. Well, she married the guy that goes down here to this evangelical church. And I don't want, I wish she hadn't done that. And I said, do you know you could have done something about it? Well, no, what do you mean? Um, you uh, fathers uh, must take back the biblical responsibility to approve whom your daughter marries. Now, again, the Puritans address this, and it's not to be unreasonable, um, but uh, there are to be standards. The person needs to be a mature, in my opinion, Reformed believer, because he's to become her head. And, and so, actually, I'd almost want to discipline fathers who are not <laughs> exercising that responsibility. But uh, if, in fact... Uh, the father has not been responsible, or the daughter or son disobey that point. They also become objects of church discipline because now, and we follow the pattern. Remember that in the judicial law, it was the principle of equity. So the pattern is, if a rebellious child was brought to the elders for stoning in the old covenant, the principle is they should be brought, a rebellious child brought to the elders for discipline uh, in the new covenant church. And so, again, it could begin there. But if the father has been also negligent, then yes, the elders must uh, first meet with that person and admonish them uh, that they need to uh, quit uh, seeing this person. On the front end, even watch, you know, guard your heart, guard your 
emotions at this point. Um, if this person not a Christian, if you want somebody in the church to uh, do some evangelistic discipleship with them, you're not to do it. Uh, even men are not to do that with a woman they want to marry, simply because you get in a spiritual level with people. That's one of the biggest ways for your emotions to run away from you. So, no, I think the church needs to become much more proactive here. And if then after admonition, uh, suspension from the sacraments, the young person continues to pursue this relationship uh, into engagement, at the point of engagement then I would say that they would be put out of the church. And listen, if, if young people listening to me, uh, I know that, uh, oh, he's a fuddy-duddy. Looks, I've dealt pastorally with many issues where one of the members in the, in the wedding and the marriage was a Christian and one wasn't. And the only thing that is guaranteed in that is heartbreak. That's right. I think we'll close on this last denominational question from Caleb Shea of Bloomington, Minnesota. And Caleb writes, I'm a member of the Reformed Church in the United States, the RCUS, and as you may know, we only allow adult male communicant members to vote in the congregational meeting. Uh, side note, if you want to hear about that practice and deliberations in the denomination um, about potentially reforming it or clarifying it, listen to my last two denominational debriefs with Travis Grassman, who's a minister in the RCUS. Continuing in the question, the line of reasoning typically goes like this. Voters in the congregation exercise collective authority in casting a ballot because women are not to exercise authority over men in the church. Women should not vote. Secondary reasoning would refer to the biblical family model, where a male head should always be present. What are your thoughts on this practice? Well, Caleb, thank you. Um, I don't buy into the concept that there's authority being exercised in, in a vote. Yes, there's collective authority, but there's not the authority of, of an individual voice uh, in that vote. And nor do I simply buy into the biblical family model where a male head should always be present. Now, I happen to believe in covenantal voting. Now, covenantal voting will normally be that the male head of the family will vote. But in our churches, we would have exceptions. We would have women who uh, have unconverted husbands. We would have women who um, are widowed and divorced and we would have uh, single women as well. And I'd, if the single woman is in the, her father's home, that's one thing. But let's say that she is uh, in the church uh, uh, from out of state. Now, a, a church could, a father could ask an elder in that church to take the covenantal responsibility for Zara. So we'll, we'll leave them out of the discussion. Uh, but a woman who's long-term single, calling by God to be long, uh, long-term single, why should she forfeit her vote? She is the head of a household, like Lydia. And so I go back to the law where uh, Zoholophat had a number of daughters and no sons. And the daughters went to Moses and said, should we lose our inheritance in Israel because uh, there are no brothers? And Moses sought God's will and determined that uh, if in a family um, there were no sons, that the covenantal privileges would go to the daughters. And they came back later and said, as long as they marry within their tribe, that will continue to keep the inheritance. And so I, I prefer 
covenantal head voting, which would then in congregations, whoever's the head of that household, uh, biblically, would have the right to, to vote. Uh, and so it's a bit of, of a in-between what we see in the OPC and the PCA with every member voting. I'm very opposed. I, I like to see young children uh, come to, to the Lord's table through a proper confession of faith. I don't want them voting in um, congregational meetings. I want them to be part of the family. Yeah, well, that, that's my position. Thank you for the question, Caleb. This is an ongoing discussion in the RCUS that will be taken up again this summer when they have, um, when they have their National Assembly, uh, their, their synodical meeting. Dr. Piper, thank you so much for your time. This has been very helpful to me, and I suspect it will be very helpful to our listeners as well. Thank you, Zach. I uh, always enjoy doing this with you. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.